Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. And if you're in first grade and down below, you may leave now to go to Kids' Own Worship. The rest of you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 4. You're going to need to be in both places this morning. So Hebrews 11 and Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be looking at both of those as our kids are leaving us this morning to go to Kids' Own Worship. And I've got a confession to make this morning. I'm, I'm leaving myself a little bit vulnerable before you. And that is this. I'm not the world's most romantic husband. But let's just pretend for a moment that um, it is Dawn and mine's 25th wedding anniversary. Now, it's not our 25th wedding anniversary. We've got many years to go. But let's just, pre- let's just pretend like it's the 25th wedding anniversary. And that's the, the anniversary where men go all out, right? You know, it's the silver anniversary. Men are supposed to, to, to go all out on that 25th anniversary to make it a special night for their wives. And so let's just pretend for a moment that um, the night comes for our anniversary date. And I forget to call and make reservations at a, at a nice restaurant, so we end up at McDonald's, or we end up at Arby's, or, or Wendy's, and, and so as Dawn is biting into her Big Mac, I look across the table and I say, Dawn, I'm so thankful you haven't gotten fat over all these years. And, and then the moment comes for me to give her the gift, and she looks in my eyes like, I hope it's a great gift. It's our 25th wedding anniversary, and I give her a generic card, and the card, I, I hand the card to Dawn and say, well... I'm supposed to give you a card on days like this. It's kind of what husbands are supposed to do. So here's, happy anniversary, Don. Have a great night. Now, would she be mesmerized by my romantic prowess? Would she be blown over just how wonderful I've made this evening for her? Or would she slap me in the face and feel very dejected, very hurt, very disappointed? You see, I may be saying to Don, I love you. You are important. But really what I'm giving her is sloppy leftovers. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm communicating to her that I love her, but there's no action behind it. There's no outward expression that I truly do love Dawn just for who she is. There, there's no celebration at this night that, hey, it's been 25 years. I love you just for who you are. There's a joy tonight. Let's celebrate being together. There's none of that. It's, it's obligatory. It's a chore. It, it, it's a ritual, this whole thing of anniversary. Now, you may be asking me the question at this point, what does this have to do with anything about the Bible? What does this have to do with living a life of authentic faith in Jesus Christ? And I would say to you this morning, it has everything to do with living a life of authentic faith in Jesus Christ. And what we'll see this morning, here's the big picture I want you to understand this morning from our, from our text of Scripture. And a life of authentic worship is a life that has outward expressions of wholehearted devotion to Jesus, wholehearted devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week, we started on this journey through Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. And if you remember, the writer of Hebrews defines for us three things about faith. Number one, we saw that faith is having a solid assurance in things not yet seen. 
Number two, we saw that faith is active. It's obedient. It's, it's passionate. It's not just a passive type of faith. And thirdly, faith is a reaction or faith is a response to God's word. God's word is the fuel for how we're obedient. We live under the authority of God's word. And so for this morning, we're going to look at this wonderful description of faith as the writer of Hebrews begins to unfold for us these Old Testament characters. And so this morning, we're going to see in the faith of Abel this wholehearted, passionate obedience and worship to the living God. We see this in the life of Abel. So let's look in our Bibles at Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to start back in verse 1 to set the stage, but we're going to read through verse 4. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith. This phrase we're going to be introduced to over and over again each week as we look at what it means to live by faith. And that can be translated acting on the basis of faith. It is an energetic word. It is a passionate word. It's not a sit back and cruise word. It's a word that means a passionate, consistent, energetic type of faith. And faith is more than just knowing facts about God. You can have your head filled with knowledge about God. You can have your head filled with knowledge about this word. But true faith means that you obey what you know. You live out day to day practically what this word says by faith. In other words, faith works. Does that make sense? Faith works. Faith acts. Faith is energetic. John Calvin said, we are saved by faith alone but not a faith that is alone. Once we are saved by faith, we work, we act, we respond, we obey. John MacArthur has said it this way. He says, make no mistake, real faith will always produce righteous works. Faith is the root, works are the fruit. Because God himself is the vine dresser, fruit is guaranteed. That's why whenever Scripture gives examples of faith, as here in Hebrews 11, faith is inevitably seen as obedient, working, and active. Faith is a response. Faith is a grace-generated response to God's Word. When God comes and saves you by grace, He comes and He changes your heart. He comes and gives you a new identity. He comes and saves you by grace, and once He changes your identity, once He changes your heart, once you're a new creature in Christ, then you begin to respond in a life of obedience to His Lordship. We work out our salvation. Does that sound weird? You work out your salvation. You don't work for your salvation but you work it out. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, notice he doesn't say work for, but work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in 
you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Now, you see the dichotomy here. We obey. God doesn't obey for us. God doesn't pray for us. God doesn't serve for us. We are responsible to do those things. But at the end of the day, any fruit that's produced, any result that happens, God is solely the author of it because he works in us. He gives us the power. He gives us the grace to be able to follow the lordship of Christ. So we need to remember that these Old Testament believers weren't somehow working for their salvation. It wasn't as if these acts of faith somehow made them acceptable to God. It wasn't because of their their faith that God accepted them. No, it was just the opposite. They already had a personal relationship with the living God, and as a result of that, they had lives that demonstrated true, authentic faith because they were already saved. Okay, so we're not saved by our works, but once we are saved, we are called to be those that live lives of good works. So you need to ask yourself a question this morning. If there's no evidence in your life, if there's no fruit in your life of, of a passionate obedience to the Lordship of Christ, a passionate and consistent obedience to this word, you may need to ask yourself a very hard question. The Bible says examine yourselves to see if you're in the, the faith. Are you truly a Christian who has been saved by grace? Because it will produce fruit. Now, let's look at Abel. He's our first Old Testament character here, the faith of Abel. And what was Abel's faith? What was this act of faith that set Abel apart? The Bible simply says he offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. It was more acceptable. And so we have to ask our question, well, why was Abel's sacrifice accepted by God and Cain's sacrifice rejected? We have to go back to the original story. So keep your finger in Hebrews 11. And let's turn all the way back to the front of your Bible in Genesis chapter 4, and let's find out the story that Moses writes for us here in Genesis chapter 4, and we'll get some insight into why Abel had this great faith. So let's look at Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, one thing you need to know about these Old Testament stories is that names mean something. There's importance in names. You know what the word able means? The word able is translated breath, vapor. It's an ominous foreshadowing that this man is only going to be on the scene for just a short period of time. He's but a breath. His life is snuffed out by the wickedness of his evil brother, Abel. You almost say it in Hebrew. It's it's translated, Abel. It's almost like the way you even say it in Hebrew. It's, It's a breath. It's a vapor. He's only going to be on the scene for just a few seconds, and then he's gone. Now, we see from these men that obviously God had prescribed worship with an offering 
as an acceptable way to worship God. Both men somehow knew they needed to bring an offering. We don't have any instructions in the text that told them when God told this to them, but obviously they knew that they needed to bring an offering to the Lord. And so we see two things here from their offering, why Abel's was accepted and Cain's was rejected. First of all, the type of sacrifice, the type of offering. What were they supposed to bring? Well, you have to go back up to Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Look at verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And God said, you will surely die. Now, they did not die physically there on the spot, but there was a spiritual death that happened. They were separated from God in their sin. And God in his grace and mercy does something unthinkable. He kills an animal, sheds the blood of an innocent animal, and covers them with garments of skin. Now, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ coming and being sacrificed as an innocent lamb of God and us being covered in his righteousness. But obviously, there must have been some type of prescribed method of bringing an animal sacrifice to the Lord as a picture of a substitutionary atonement. And Abel knew this. So he brings to God from an animal that's been sacrificed, whereas Cain brings from the produce of his ground. And I'm sure that that, that Cain and Abel had heard these stories from their parents. I'm sure Adam and Eve told them over and over again, God provided for us. We sinned, we thought we were toast, and then God came and he killed the animal. We'd never seen blood before, but all of a sudden God kills an animal and then he comes in his grace and he covers us with this, with this covering. He covers our shame, he, he shows us grace. And so they must have known that, that somehow God accepts this type of, of substitutionary atonements. And then we also get a hint from verse 3. Verse 3, it says, in the course of time. Literally in the Hebrew, it means at the end of days. And some scholars believe that there was possibly some prescribed time where God had called for them to come and present their offering to him. And so Abel comes with an expression of worship that sees a need for an atonement. He comes with this idea that I know that in God's economy, a blood atonement is what God requires. And Abel comes with an expression of what he relied upon. Cain comes with produce. Now, Cain's probably thinking to himself, I worked harder than Abel. I toiled, I sowed the seed, I planted the seed, I went and cultivated the crop. Look at what I have done with my own hands and brought to you, God. And, And Abel over there, all he did was kill an animal. I've produced something for you, God. So Cain comes with this whole idea of self-righteousness, look what I can produce. Abel comes with a substitutionary atonement to the Lord. But secondly, not only the type of sacrifice, but the attitude behind the sacrifice, the manner in which they brought the sacrifice. You don't get this from your original languages, but if you go back and you look at the original Hebrew, when it says there that Cain brought fruit, fruit from the ground, It's almost in a construction that makes it almost sound like it's one piece of fruit. He doesn't bring a bushel. He doesn't bring a basket. I can almost picture maybe he brings a half a banana. Or he brings a little cluster of grapes. He brings a portion of one fruit to God. He comes to God and says, I'm going to give you my sloppy leftovers. I'm going to give you one fruit, God. That's what I'm offering to you. But what does Abel bring? Notice Abel. 
Abel brings the firstborn of his flock, the firstborn, the most important, and the fat portions. So, so Abel comes with this attitude that I'm going to give God my best. I'm going to give God my first. I'm going to give God what he deserves because he's my provider and I know that he's worthy of worship. Cain comes and says, I'm going to give God sloppy leftovers and I'm going to look religious. I'm going to come and bring my token offering, but my heart is cold. My heart is not in it. I'm going to be bringing just this half-hearted expression of devotion to God. Whereas Abel said, I'm bringing a wholehearted expression of devotion to the Lord. And the thing that's so sad about this story is that Cain is given a second chance. What does God say to Cain? Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Basically, God's coming to Cain and saying, You blew it the first time, Cain, okay? But I'm giving you a second chance. If you do well, you'll be accepted. I'm giving you a chance to get it right. If you come back and do it the right way and with the right attitude, I will accept the offering. And I need to tell you something. Anytime that God gives you a second chance, you better take it. One pastor said it this way. Whereas Cain's mother had been talked into sin, Cain would not be talked out of it. God says, Cain, I'm giving you a second chance. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans 2, chapter 4, where Paul says, Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, when God gives you a second chance, it's not for you to keep doing the sin over and over again. It's a chance to repent. And this is another expression of authentic Christian faith. Authentic Christian faith is a faith that is a repenting faith. You repent at the mercies of God. You view repentance as this heartfelt contrition that you actually realize that God gives you multiple second chances and it's not for you to keep doing the same old sin over and over again, but it's for you to see his kindness and then live a life of repentance. But what does Cain do in the heat of the moment? God warns him. Sin is crouching at your door like a wild animal. Cain, it's going to get you. You must master it. Cain doesn't listen to God. Cain is faithless. He goes out in a murderous and jealous rage, does what? Murders his own brother. He kills his brother. He goes the way of wickedness. Now, that's the original story. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment. And the writer gives a commentary on this. Verse 4. By faith, acting on the basis of faith, this energetic, obedient, responsive faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Righteous. We looked at this last week, this word commended. God looked upon Abel and put a stamp of approval upon Abel's faith. God testified to Abel's faith. Now, the question is, was Abel righteous as a result of his sacrifice? Or was Abel already righteous through a relationship with God and his sacrifice evidenced that? I believe it's the first. I mean, I believe it's the second. Sorry. We are not saved by our works. We're saved by grace, and then we obey as a result of what God has done in our hearts. Now remember, Hebrews 10, 38. The righteous shall what? Live by faith. Does it say the righteous shall think by faith? The righteous shall talk by faith? The righteous shall read their Bibles by faith. Now, all those things are right, but what does it say? The righteous shall what? Live. So it's a lifestyle. 
If you're going to live a life of authentic, uh, authentic obedience to God, it requires this life of worship to him. A life of worship. And Jesus gives a testimony in Matthew 23. Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees and he's pronouncing a woe upon them. And in Matthew 23, Jesus calls Abel innocent. The innocent blood of Abel. So Jesus gives a commentary upon Abel. And so the Pharisees were acting in the way of Cain. The Pharisees were coming in this idea of of murderous threats against Jesus, walking in rebellion. And do you realize Abel was the first martyr? I mean, the second guy, to, third, second guy to live after Adam and Eve was a martyr for his faith. He died because of his faith in Christ at the hands of his own brother. We also find this in 1 John. 1 John gives a warning. 1 John three twelve: We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, the writer of Hebrews gives a very interesting statement here at the end of verse 4. He says, and, though through his, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Although Abel died, he still speaks. We have his testimony recorded for us. Think about the irony of this. What does Abel's name mean? Vapor, breath. Man whose name is breath speaks forever. Cain, you know what Cain's name means? I got, I acquired. It's all about me. Cain is forever remembered as one being wicked. But Abel's faith still speaks today. Now, let me just bring this into 21st century Sterling, northeastern Colorado for a moment because we didn't live back in that time. And, and so what's the, what's the point? Here's the issue with Abel. When you begin to see the majesty of Christ, when you begin to see the glory of Christ, when you begin to see that Jesus is worthy of all worship, Jesus is worthy of all praise, he is everything to you, you hold nothing back. And why do you not hold anything back from Christ? Because you see him as worth it. You see him as valuable. You only truly worship what you value. Think about it. Everybody worships what you truly value. In other words, the more that we value Jesus, the more we will worship him. And we will worship him because we want to. We will worship him because we get to, not because I have to. And that's what we see in Abel. Somehow Abel, we, we don't know all the, the details. It's, it's kind of, uh, the writer has have not given us the full picture, but somehow Abel knew the majesty, the worth, the beauty of God, and as a result, he held nothing back. He gave God his best. It wasn't just lip service. It wasn't just leftovers. It was seeing God worthy of all worship and holding nothing back. And when we think about Abel, Abel gave generously. What did he give? The firstborn of his flocks and the fat portions. What does Paul tell us in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7? The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's Abel. Abel was a cheerful giver. Now, how? How do we 
This is where application comes in. How do we give all to God? How do we live lives of outward expressions of wholehearted obedience and devotion to the living God? There's a lot of ways that we can do that, but let me just focus on three this morning, and they all have to do with generosity. They all have to do with a generous heart. So how do we live the way of Abel? First of all, I believe this. We can give generously of our treasures back to the Lord. We can give generously of our treasures back to the Lord. Do you realize that God owns everything anyway? Just a little newsflash if you didn't realize that. You don't own anything. Everything you have, even the breath that you have, is on loan from God, that he's in his grace given to you. God owns everything. Haggai. When was the last time you read Haggai? Haggai 2.8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. He owns it all. Psalm chapter 50, verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns everything already. So one of the ways that we can generously give back to him is in our treasures. As a matter of fact, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says this. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. One of the ways that you can outwardly express, not just lip service, I think I missed a scripture. Go back to Matthew 15, 7 through 9 there on the screen. Matthew 15, 7 through 9, Jesus says this, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. How are we those that don't just worship God with our lips, but there's action? There's an outward expression of obedience. Number one is our treasures. We can honor God by giving generously of our treasures back to the Lord. Secondly, we can give generously of our time. Remember our journey back in Ephesians? A few months ago, we looked at this, Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. You want to know who rules your life? Look at two things your checkbook, and your calendar. Now, some of you don't have checkbooks anymore. I understand that because everything's online. You've got debit cards, and some of you don't have calendars anymore. You've got Blackberries or iPhones. So whatever you use, whether it's an iPhone, a Blackberry, an actual checkbook, where you spend your money, where you spend your time will show who is really Lord of your life. It'll show you what you're giving to the Lord. So how do you worship the Lord with your time? Your time. I mean, every single one of us is given the same amount of time. I don't know of anybody that has 27 hours in a day. Anybody have 27 hours in a day? We all have 24 hours. God has all given us the same amount of time. How are we stewards of that time? Now, I came across a, a story this week from one of the blogs that I often read, and it's, the, the story is called Busyness, the New Spirituality. And this pastor quotes from an article in the Seattle Times, and this is what the, the article said. Nearly 10 million Americans worked more than 60 hours a week last year, the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics found. We've outpaced the famously productive Japanese in hours worked. We're the only developed nation without mandatory vacation time. And according to the Expedia.com's annual vacation poll, one-third of us will take no vacation this year. We are a busy, workaholic type of people. How much time do we spend doing things that don't really matter? I mean, I'm guilty of this. I'll tell you one of my weaknesses is after a long day at work, I want to come home and, and watch TV. Especially in the age of TiVo, it makes it really nice. We've become spoiled. We don't have to watch commercials anymore, do we? 
we can fast forward through the commercials and watch all those shows that we've recorded. Is watching television the best use of our time? Is surfing the internet the best use of our time? Most of us need to simplify if you really think about it. And I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'm sharing my heart here because I'm one of those people that can't say no. Some of you are like that. You pile activity upon activity and you just go, go, go when you don't simplify. And being in the ministry can be one of the most busy professions you have. You've got ministerial responsibilities, you've got pastoral responsibilities, you've got denominational responsibilities, you've got your, your kid responsibilities, you've got your wife responsibilities, and after all, you've got to balance this whole life that you live with sports and with school and with activities and with ministries and all these different things. How do you simplify and give God the best use of your time? Treasures time, and thirdly, you can give generously of your talents or your gifts back to the Lord. Every single one of us, if you're a Christian in this room, has a spiritual gift or gifts that God has given you to be used to build up the body of Christ. And here's what oftentimes happens in churches. I've seen it over and over again. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. In some churches, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. It just depends on the church. But just imagine with me what would happen if every single one of you in this room today, every single one of you connected to Emmanuel Baptist Church, served in your area of giftedness, you used your spiritual gift to serve the body of Christ, think about what type of impact we'd make on our culture, what type of impact we'd make for the kingdom of God. First Peter chapter 4 says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, these are just three examples of how you can concretely give of God your best, your treasures, your time, your talents. Are you giving God leftovers, or are you worshiping him with outward expressions of heartfelt, wholehearted obedience? Remember, faith acts. Faith works. Faith doesn't just sit there passively and wait for things to happen. It is a response to revelation. It's a passionate pursuit of God. Now, I'm going to say it again. We worship what we value. Every single person on planet Earth is a worshiper. That's not the, that's not the issue. The issue is not whether people worship. Everyone worships. The question we need to ask is what do people worship? What is the object of our worship? Because every single one of us are worshipers. And here's the worst thing that has happened in the history of humankind. There is a tragic, horrific, devastating thing that has happened in the life of every single one of us in this room. Turn with me just for a moment in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Just turn over a few, not a few books, but I guess a few books to Romans chapter 1. I want you to read this with your own eyes and I want you to see what has happened. Here's the devastating reality. We have exchanged the glory of God for created things. And that is called idolatry. Do you know what the worst sin in the Bible is? It's not murder. It's not homosexuality. It's not adultery. It's idolatry. It is the root of all sins. All throughout Genesis to Revelation, God condemns idolatry 
more than any other sin. And let's see how this idolatry plays itself out. Romans 1, let's start in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. Circle that, underline that. Exchanged what? The glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, there it is, circle it, underline, exchanged what? The truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. 1 John 5.21 says this, Little children, keep yourself from idols. What is idolatry? Is it, is it bowing down and worshiping a statue of Buddha? For most of us, probably not. Tim Keller gives a great definition of idolatry. Let me tell you what Tim Keller says. He says an idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. The most basic question which God poses to each human heart is this. Has something or someone besides Jesus taken title to your heart's functional preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. We serve, we value what we worship. And if that something is not Jesus, then it's always going to disappoint. If the object of your worship is not Jesus, everything else you worship is going to disappoint you. It's going to leave you in bondage. It's going to leave you disappointed. It's going to leave you in despair because nothing else in this world can satisfy you the way that only Jesus Christ can. And here's what's happened. We as humans are hardwired to find substitutes for God. Every, probably 95% of us in this room would, with our lips say, Jesus is my Savior. With our lips. But when you live your day-to-day life, a lot of us are finding functional saviors that take the place of Jesus to give us what only Jesus can, and that is idolatry. We try to find a substitute for our Savior by trying to find meaning in all these different things, even good things, that become idols. And we play this game, if only, if only I had a better job. If only I had a better spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend. If only I had better children. If only I was a better athlete. If only I had more money. If only, if only, if only. If only these things were right in my life, I would be happy. And here's the problem. We try to find functional savers by saying, if I just had these things, I will have meaning, I will have purpose, I will have satisfaction. All these things will satisfy me. And at the end of the day, they don't satisfy you because you're only supposed to find satisfaction in Jesus Christ. What we've done is we've exchanged the glory of Christ. We've traded it in for created things. And we think that these created things will give us purpose. And here's the scary thing. Look at verse 25 of Romans 1. I don't know if you caught this, but this is scary. And I think most of us experience this from time to time. Verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served. Served the creature. In other words, you serve what you worship. You become in bondage or a slave to what you worship. But if that object of your worship is not Jesus Christ and something else, you become in bondage to it. Why? Because you believe the lie that that thing is going to give you what only Jesus can. 
And you begin to serve it, you begin to live for it, you begin to, to, to pile all your chips into that thing to give you what only Jesus can. But what happens when that thing disappoints you? What if you serve money and the stock market goes south? What if you serve a spouse in an ungodly way and they disappoint you? What if you serve a career and you get laid off? What if you serve these things in an ungodly way, you become an idolater, you become enslaved to them, and when they disappoint you, you get mad, you get angry, you get upset, you get devastated because you were meant to find your satisfaction in Jesus, not these things. And these things can be good things. There's nothing wrong with the job. There's nothing wrong with the spouse. There's nothing wrong with the career. There's not even anything wrong with money in and of itself. The problem is, is when we inflate these two become ultimate things. I've said it before. When good things become God things, it's a bad thing. When good things become ultimate things, it becomes idolatry. Because instead of finding satisfaction, meaning, purpose, happiness, joy in Christ, we find it in created things. That's the temptation all of us face with idolatry. We become idolaters. And every other sin flows from that idolatry. That's what Cain did. Cain tried to look religious. Cain said, I'm going to come and look religious. I'm going to give lip service. I'm going to pretend that I truly love God, but I'm giving him my, my leftovers. I'm coming in the inappropriate way of sacrifice. But, but Abel says, no, I found something worthy in God. I'm just going to come and worship God because he simply is worthy to be worshiped and I'm going to give him my best. I'm going to give him my heartfelt devotion. I'm going to worship him and hold nothing back. You see, here's the issue. You worship what you value and you value what you worship. If Jesus is your all-consuming power, if he's your all-consuming pleasure, if he's he's your all-consuming everything, then you're going to worship him with heartfelt obedience simply because of who he is. Not because of what he can give you, not because you can somehow look religious or try to win brownie points with God. You come and you worship him simply because he's worthy of worship, and he is your all in all. He is your treasure. Now, in the end, this story about Cain and Abel is not really about Cain and Abel. It's about Jesus. We'll see this each week. Jesus is the better and more perfect Abel. Let's make a comparison here. Abel was killed by the hands of an unrighteous man, and his blood cries out. Jesus was killed by the hands of an unrighteous man, and his blood cries out. But his blood brings salvation to all who will believe in him. Abel was commended as righteous. God put a stamp of approval on Abel's life. Jesus was the one who 100% obeyed God and thought word and deed. And God put his ultimate stamp of approval upon Jesus because he said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And God put a stamp of approval upon uh, Jesus by raising him from the dead. So Jesus is the better able. His blood speaks a better word. He was better commended because he 100% obeyed his father. And notice what it says, Abel still speaks. Guess what? Jesus still speaks because he's alive. He's risen from the dead. He is the greater and more perfect Abel. Now, we're going to get to this eventually. Go back to Hebrews 11 for just a moment. All throughout Hebrews chapter 11, the writer is going to give examples of faith. We're going to look at Enoch next week, Noah, Abraham, Moses, but never, never, ever, ever once does the writer of Hebrews say, fix your eyes on Abraham. 
Fix your eyes on Abel. Fix your eyes on Enoch. Fix your eyes on Moses. Never once does he tell us to fix our eyes on these people. Why? Because we are not to fix our eyes on these people. As a matter of fact, he ends it, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, fix your eyes on who? Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Now, we can learn from these people, but ultimately, these Old Testament people were commended because of their faith was a faith that had their eyes fixed on Jesus as their ultimate treasure. So never fix your gaze on Abel. Don't fix your eyes on Moses. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Because it's only in Christ, it's only in Christ that you will find purpose, meaning, satisfaction, joy, pleasure, and eventually eternal life. It's only in Christ alone that you find these things. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, I would just say that's our prayer this morning. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. The greater Abel, whose blood still speaks a better word than Abel, who was commended by his father as being totally obedient, obedient to death on a cross, and his faith still speaks today because Jesus rose from the dead, and he speaks today, and he's calling all within the sound of my voice to come and follow this Christ who died for our sins. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads.